I see the role of moral philosophy not in kind of starting from ground zero and articulating a essentially unmoored in experience and intuition and traits of character set of rules by which we can, as long as we apply them correctly, we will do the right thing, be good people, live an ethical life, etc., etc. I see the role of moral theory as similar to the way you might think about musical theory. Political philosophy is applied ethical philosophy. All political questions have their foundations in matters of right and wrong, of how we ought to live and how we can live together. On today's episode, Trevor and I discuss our differing approaches to thinking about ethical theories and the role moral philosophy plays in how we approach thorny political issues. We begin, however, with the question of human reason and its limits, what we can know and how we can know it, and whether our arguments hook on to objective facts about reality turns out to matter quite a lot for how we then think about morality and politics. But before we get into that, let me tell you quickly about the benefits of becoming a Freedom supporter. This is an independent show, which means we depend upon our listeners to keep the lights on. If you like the show and want to support it, you'll not only get our deepest thank you, but also frequent bonus content and extended interviews and access to episode transcripts for those of you who prefer to read your podcasts. To learn more, head to www.freedom.audio. Now on to today's discussion. I have been rereading a book that you recommended to me 20 years ago that is called Confessions of a Philosopher by a guy named Brian McGee, who was a trained philosopher at Oxford and Yale and then worked as a BBC presenter for a lot of years doing philosophy programming. And I think that it may be my favorite book about philosophy that I have ever read, not in terms of as a work of philosophy, but a book about the practice of philosophy and the role of philosophy in one's life and the major ideas that that go into all of it. And I was struck by a passage that I wanted to talk to you about because I think it represents to a great extent the way that my thinking on a lot of issues and particularly philosophical issues has evolved over the last 20 years. So there's a part in there where he is he's talking about kind of what he refers to as an ideological commitment to reason. And and I think we all have encountered this. You see this in people with logic and reason in their Twitter bios often have this view or people in what they describe as like the rationalist community kind of often have this view or orthodox objectivists have something like this, which is that human reason is essentially unbounded, that there is nothing beyond which it is capable of engaging with, understanding, grasping, and eventually solving, that that basically our minds are limitless and whatever we can use logic to arrive at must correspond with some sort of absolute truth. And if we haven't found it yet, it's simply because we haven't used enough logic and enough reason to get there. And McGee is is very dismissive of this view on the grounds that it seems obviously 
incorrect with even a moment's introspection, that it's it's simply not true, that that our reason is a incredibly powerful tool that we have. It has allowed us to accomplish a lot of amazing things, but ultimately we are embodied beings. We're just animals. This is my gloss a bit on his on his argument. And I, I have the full thing in a post that I wrote on my newsletter, so I'll put that link in the show notes. But but our minds and our abilities, our awareness, our senses, our intellect are as limited as any other animals would be. They in the sense that they they are not limitless, right? Like there are things that my dog cannot understand and can't even understand that it can't understand. And we are fine with that. We like none of us are like, no, my dog's intellect is limitless. But it would be weird to then think ours, I'm certainly smarter than my dog, I'm pretty sure. But it would be weird to think that my intellect was, in fact, limitless. And and this has really changed the way that I approach philosophical reasoning, that philosophical reasoning is much more of a almost a phenomenological project that you're trying to figure out the nature of your own experience and your shared experience with others and how we interact with others. But all of this is done in this recognized set of limits that we are simply bags of matter walking around in the world doing our best, but but there's not something ultimately kind of uniquely special in the universe about us. Well, yeah, I think the I like the phrase ghost-driven skeletons covered with meat uh, is one that I've heard. But yes, um, it's an interesting thought experiment and it requires you to think about thinking, which is, of course, kind of what philosophy is in some ways. But uh, first for uh, listeners, the book Confessions of a Philosopher by Brian McGee is absolutely stunning. The, the way I discovered it was because my modern philosophy professor, Wes Morrison, who in modern philosophy you're supposed to cover basically Descartes through Kant, but Wes loved Hume so much, and I later had an entire class on Hume with Wes, that we spent about two-thirds of the class on Hume. And then with about a week left, he realized we hadn't done Kant, which of course is very important for understanding modern philosophy. And so he zero rather than having us read Kant, which is never fun, let's be honest, uh, he Xeroxed the entire chapter of Brian McGee's book explaining Kant. And if you don't understand Kant, if nothing else, I mean, you should read the book, but it is the most lucid explanation of what Kant believed I've ever read. Uh, and it will help you if you're at all philosophically minded uh, forever. I always go back to it. But anyway, back to Aaron's point. The bounded reason, it's it's obvious. I agree. But I think the question you're asking is, uh, you're not an irrationalist, right? You're not, you're not saying this doesn't produce any truths or we can't use this thing in our head to produce any any truths that are workable or livable or even, you know, that make airplanes fly. Uh, there's some, there's, we're, we're, we're animals. Our brain has the lizard brain part. It's a kludge in the, in the evolutionary psychologist sense. It's, it wasn't built to pursue reason, but 
it would be difficult to survive if you didn't perceive something such as the tiger in the woods, the cliff coming up on you. It would be difficult to survive in that way. And I think that's where some pragmatists come in uh, and trying to figure out the, the nature of truth. But really, I think what we're talking about is what is the point of the philosophic endeavor? Is it is it to sit around and talk about what you talked about in metaphysics class? Who did you have for metaphysics? I had Michael Humer. When, I don't think I ever actually took a metaphysics class. Didn't you have to go back? When you when you went back and did your major, didn't you have to do metaphysics? Because it was required. No, it was not a required. Uh, okay, well, well, humor's great for humor who was on Free Thoughts uh, three or four times, I think. And I used to teach with him at IHS, and, and he's a friend. Uh he he taught metaphysics and he, he he said, you know, this is a study of what is real. Or as my dad's philosophy professor, he also has a philosophy degree and also became a lawyer. This metaphysics is just the study of what's really, 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 really real uh, as a definition of it. Um, but after a while, if you're doing McTaggart's theory of the unreality of time, you kind of wonder what you're doing and why. And to your point, do I have a brain that is able to apprehend reality and make meaningful conclusions about what reality is like on the level that they talk in sort of academic metaphysics. And that, I think, gets to the question, again, a lesson from my dad, of like the first philosophical question you have to ask is what philosophical questions matter uh, and which ones can I use my limited time and limited brain to do something with that will make some difference in the choices I make in my life. Or in the very succinct way my dad always put it uh, and puts it is uh, the most important philosophical question is what do I do next? And which means what philosophical questions matter. And I, and the bounded thing is it's, it's obvious. I mean, I agree with you. It would be very weird. I mean, if you had a divine origin of man, if you have some sort of, Aquinas, Thomist view of like the nature of reason, apprehending God, uh, and Randians kind of touch on that, but without the God part, um, you could talk about that. But I think if you accept how our brain came into being, then its ability to apprehend truths is unbelievably limited. And a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to understand things that they simply cannot understand any better than your dog. Yeah, I think one way to think about it is, as far as this question of recognizing the limits is not the same thing as, say, being an irrationalist or saying reason isn't real or that anything goes or that everything's made up, is I can recognize that there are animals out there with much better vision than I have. They can see more of the world than I can see when I look around. And so there are things out there that I will never be able to see except possibly through some technological, you know, interventionary medium. I can, I can use a microscope. I can use something that will take certain color frequencies my eyes can't see and convert them into color frequencies my eyes can see. But that, that's not actually seeing these things out there in the world. I can accept that. All of us accept that. But that we don't then draw the conclusion from it that therefore nothing I see is real 
or that everything I see is merely subjective or that I can't learn incredible things through vision or that the use of my vision to explore the world is somehow misplaced or misguided and so on. And, and I think at some level, this is recognizing that same thing as reason is, is another mental capacity that we have. Vision's a, a mental capacity, a taste, hearing, all of that. Reason is just another of those. And it works like it works like vision does. And I think you're right that this this shifts the philosophical project to an exploration of who we are and specifically like our place and the nature of our experience. And that can be a shared project. I can be pretty certain that you and I, there's always that weird, like kind of one of the first philosophical questions you wonder about is like, do other people, when they see blue, does it look the same as when I see blue? Like we can have those kinds of conversations, but obviously we have a shared experience. You and I put this on the calendar Right, And we both showed up at the same time because there is some sort of fundamental time reality that exists, uh, even if we can't observe directly, say, the nature of time. Uh, but, but what it means is that I think it, it injects a humility into us. And I think it – and this is one of the things that McGee is very good about is that the notion that our reason, our capacities are unbounded, everything is accessible, is to some extent like takes a lot of the wonder out of the world in that it it gives us this kind of like unrealistic exactness to everything, a sense that that everything is objective in some way. And and so much of the wonder, I think, in the world is there's stuff out there that we can we can kind of grasp at, but we can't ever really fully know. We can like feel around the contours of it. We have directions that we can push, but we're never going to get all the way there. And it adds it adds this richness, I think, to the exploration. Whereas if kind of everything was just immediately solvable, whatever that would happen to look like, it would it would strip a bit of that that ambiguity as well, which is where a lot of the really interesting stuff happens. You know, like a work of art, a, a movie that has a somewhat of an ambiguous ending can be more interesting to wrestle with than one where everything is just really cut and dry. And I think there's there's an element of that to the human experience as well and the possibility of, of difference and change and so on. Yeah, and I, I want to be clear, as you pointed out, like, I I believe, there are benefits to, you know, clear, rational thinking that help solve issues, eliminate contradictions, some of the basic rules of, of rationality. This is not about we're anti-rational. Um, it's about trying to figure out where and how you should use that and what, what sort of things, you know, yield beneficial gains if you use your rationality on a certain problem. And, you know, we know this in quantum physics, not to bring up a, you know, very tired uh, example, but nevertheless, something that philosophers and physicists have been talking about since we discovered these weirdness of the world. And 
the question of whether or not the the underlying reality of reality insofar as we perceive it should obey intuitions and things that make sense to us in what I've has been turned middle verse because we live in a world where we're middle-sized beings in who live middle-sized times uh, and so very, very big things like the size of the universe or very, very small things like the inside of an atom just do not conform to our intuitions and whether or not we should expect that. Now, I think physicists have, you know, they don't really think about it um, uh, and philosophers have occasionally tried to say it should or shouldn't. Um, but the, the first thing I think is just to realize that there's no reason to think it should with the the tool that we're using to try and understand it. Um, I like reading about quantum physics. Um, I don't get it. I'm not sure I'll ever get it. I can't run the experiments. That's fine. Uh, but that, I think that's one reason. And I think this is true for you too, Aaron, that we, I find more human grounded questions to be more interesting and more, more pressing, obviously more pressing the the nature of the atom is not going to affect what I do next. Um, but ethics and I think politics, which is an extension of ethics, those do matter and they do matter to people. Um, and of course we, you know, there's a bunch of questions we could ask and we could become, you know, comp entirely suspicious of our intuition and say, you know, do human beings matter? Like does your sense that human beings matter or animals or, or does any of that stuff, uh, should you be questioned at all? I mean, maybe we should just murder everyone uh, and throw our intuition aside, throw our reasoning aside. And that's, I think, the questions of that are very difficult in terms of what is your what is your starting point? Uh, and, and you still have to have, you have to deal with metaphysics to some extent and epistemology. And then how do you get to some sort of ethical theory that leads you to decisions or guides you in decisions in your life while understanding that you are a bounded human being who can't understand the actual nature of reality. I think too, there is a, there's a worry I have, or I mean, it's not even a worry because I see it actually happening where the, this, this ideology of reason, call it this belief that one's logic and reason that humanity's logic and reason can be kind of unlimited and infallible has a – manifests in an individualized sense in, in a way that you, you encounter a lot of people who think, if I have logic and reasoned my way to a conclusion, that conclusion must be correct. Based on the information that I had, I have derived the following answer and that answer must be correct and anyone who – arrives at a different answer either through their own logic and reason or through other sense capacities or or mental capacities and so on has is obviously wrong like disagreement with me is a sign that your reason has has gone wrong you are irrational are you just subtweeting so randians right now no it's a lot broader than okay that. but i do think that this is like my i think rand got some arguments right, although I think most of the arguments that she got right or came to the right conclusions on, there are actually better philosophical arguments for those conclusions than the ones that she makes. She gets a lot of stuff wrong, but that's the case with 
I have not yet encountered a philosopher I think got everything right, you know, um, and and no one really treats any no one but kind of orthodox objectivists treat the philosopher they're into as being infallibly right. Uh, but my problem, yeah, one of my big problems with with Rand and kind of orthodox objectivism is this idea that disagreement with objectivist conclusions or seeing problems with objectivist arguments is a sign that not that there might be a problem with the objectivist argument, but that the person making the counterclaim is either evil, they're motivated with, they have evil purpose in mind and that's why they're rejecting this truth, or is simply irrational because they're not seeing that this truth is 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 a truth with capital T. And that that's just like a, a really awful way to approach philosophical reasoning. But no, I think this is broader than that. I think that there's there's this tendency. So you saw this, you saw this in the rationalist community, you see this in other places where people are, I'm going to destroy this person with logic and reason, right? And and that destruction is going to come about because they are clearly irrational versus the much more obvious, like disagreements can be genuine. Um, they can be coming from different like perspectives matter a lot. Body of knowledge matters a lot. Like this is my objection to like axiomatic thinking often is that axiomatic thinking kind of jettisons the need to like really understand complexities at a deep level and recognize ambiguities and and recognize conflicts in principles and data and and the limit the limited nature of our knowledge and our capacities and instead to say like nope I can kind of solve every problem that presents itself through the application of this flowchart of reasoning um, and and it often leads to I think just wrong or like sometimes monstrous conclusions. But there's there's this there's an arrogance of objectivity, I suppose might be one way to put it that shows up a lot, and and gets people digging in to their own views in a way that short circuits our ability to have meaningful discussions and to kind of grow intellectually together. Because you're just, you know, I think you and I, years and years and years ago, we made some t-shirts and I think, and one of the ones, or no, it was the logo, it was the the um, slogan for something we were putting together, a website maybe that we symbolic, were like against certainty. Order, against certainty. Yeah. yeah, I think, but against certainty was like, there's, there's a degree to which certainty can be a, a hindrance to learning truth-seeking exploration, discovery, and so on. Because if you think you've got it figured out, you're done. Sure. I mean, right. But, but let me push back because while I agree that this, what we've been talking about is sort of, an, it's attitudinal. I'm not sure it's sort of like fully defensible down to its core because there has to be a reason you believe X over Y. And, and maybe, so if I say, okay, why are you a virtue ethicist? Right. Um, if you're not a subjectivist, if you think, if you don't think that, you know, Hey man, that, that's just your opinion. I watched Big Lebowski again the other night, uh, is the answer to every ethical problem from Hitler, uh, to, you know, Joe Biden. I mean, that's not exactly a scale, but I'm just saying like that, 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 um, if that's your, if that's your 
that there's just subjectivity. Or if you have a reason to believe a thing you believe. <clears throat> and it could be because you believe at least something is more likely to be true than something else. Um, and I'm not defending objectivity per se, but I'm, I'm have to make a decision on beliefs and say, okay, um, I think it's, I'm looking out my window from my music studio right now. There's a tree out there. I think the perception of that tree makes it more likely that, that tree is there than it's not there. Um, and using a rubric to come to a type of like a, a will to believe in almost a William James sense, um, but not treating that as objectively true. I mean, I mean, we're, we, you know, we have you and I are both very committed people in terms of what we think is right and wrong, um, and so there has to, it, it, all all ethics has a metaphysics. You can't get away from it. Um, there's only three questions in philosophy. Well, maybe four. Well, there's four because I said the first one. Uh, what should I philosophize about? What should I do next? That's the existential question. But all things in, involve the, the following three questions. What is there? How do I know? What do I do about it? One, what is there? Metaphysics. Two, how do I know? Epistemology. Three, what do I do about it? Ethics. And you can't get to what do I do about it without an it, without a theory of the it. Um, and so, I mean, it's interesting because I think this is a good time to get into virtue ethics because Aaron was, he, he's in Col he lives in Colorado now. I'm, I'm still in Arlington, Virginia, but he was visiting and we, we hashed this out a bit uh, about virtue ethics, but like, what's the metaphysics of virtue ethics? It can't just be like, do things that make you feel good about your actualization as a human being. I mean, that's subjective. There has to be something, it, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you on like, we can't be over certain that creates a lot of monstrous positions. We can't choose zealots. We can't choose well icons that we that we zealot, we are zealots following, which I think a lot of Randians do. Um, but there's still got to be something where we talk about there has to be a reason to believe X over Y, and that's why I believe it. Yeah, and I think to some extent it can just be. So the question of like. Why should you do the right thing? However we want to define the right thing. Say like, let's just say there's, I say to you, Trevor, what you're doing is, is wrong. And rather than you responding, oh, I thought it was right, you know, like tell me why it's wrong. You know, so kind of accepting that there is a, that these are two moral categories and you should prefer one to the other. If you instead reply to me, I don't care about doing what's right um, or I want to do what's wrong, the stronger claim, I don't know that that is something that I can meaningfully address in an argumentative sense. I mean I can give you – I can give you reasons like I can say – you know, you should you should care more about the impact of your actions on people around you because they are autonomous beings with dignity that should be regarded and so on. I could say you will be happier if you live a moral life and strive to take morally correct actions and limit the morally incorrect actions. Um, I could say there's 
there's a divine being that will punish you. No. Uh, but ultimately, like, even all of those claims, you could just respond with basically versions of that same rebuttal. You could say, I like causing suffering to others. Or, yeah, maybe maybe a vicious life will make me unhappy in the ways that you have defined, but either I don't care or that's in fact the life I would prefer, or I want to be punished, or I reject your idea of a divine punisher. And then I could give further answers. I could give further kind of, and you could go back and forth. And ultimately, I think at the core of this, of like all moral ethical theories, is just an acceptance of the idea that we want to be we want to be good we want to do the right thing and then the question becomes okay what does that entail what are the contours how do we handle the inevitable conflicts the edge cases the the fuzziness and so on um but but that that basic question of like no you actually should want to do the right thing, I think is we can argue around it, but the person who is genuinely committed to doing wrong, to being immoral, to being vicious, you can't really give them a non-rebuttable argument. You just kind of have to accept that part of the human experience, part of just being the way that we are, with potentially some exceptions, but most of us want to be good, want to live flourishing, happy, thriving lives, want to be well-regarded by others, have a, a sense of the suffering of others and want that to be avoided as opposed to being part of the cause of it and so on. Like you just have to kind of accept Yeah, but you're that. avoiding metaphysics that I think... again. You're still avoiding metaphysics. I mean, it could look, so we talked about the bounded theory of rationality and and one of the things our brain, our construction of our brain has done, has you could argue it has made us care about people, perhaps irrationally. Um, perhaps the thing we should be doing is Peter Singer style murdering babies without brains, you know, or just something, you know, unbelievably utilitarian. Imagine something as monstrous as you can imagine. And that anything that you have in your head that makes you think that you're a bad person while you're doing that is just your lizard brain telling you that you're a bad person unless you have some other reason to care about whether or not you feel like a, a bad person or a good person. There has to be some other reason. I I don't know that there has to be for most of us. I think that we can just say like, look, this is – I have a disposition to want to be a good person. I think that that's a disposition that is widely – shared. You know, we could point to sociopaths or psychopaths as an exception, but that, you know, it seems to be a human universal. Uh, we could give reasons why it is beneficial in the sense of, you know, this this disposition enables us to live together, to cooperate in ways that, you know, increase the quality of life for most people and potentially, you know, increase you might say I don't like to be moral and I want to go around doing bad stuff, but in most cases, the person who just goes around doing bad stuff doesn't seem to live as good of a life, you know, from the perspective of others and even from themselves. Like you don't, 
you don't tend to find as much success, blah, blah, blah. We can make up, you know, we could have all of that. But ultimately, I think there isn't, there isn't a way around the fact that this simply is a question of just disposition, that you fundamentally cannot give an answer to the person who says, nope, I want to be evil, that will, that like at, at like a metaphysical level says there is something, there is something like at an objective level wrong with that baked into the nature of reality versus this is the way all of us are um and the fine the rest of us are then going to treat you i mean what about the fact does uh, this is ethical intuitionism could say well you want to torture children everyone agrees that you shouldn't torture children that's a good reason to believe that torturing children is wrong in a metaphysical sense but that doesn't work on them you're saying I, I'm saying that I think that that is – that's again like a decent reason in the same way that like if you look out the window at the tree and you say – and you know and, and you can point to the tree and say, Aaron, do you see that tree as well? And I say, yes, I see it. And we can go around and we can ask other people, do they see the tree and so on. Um, that can give us pretty good reason to accept. Well, you – I mean you agree that, that, that the, the, the more people – even the more people who say the tree is there – is adds more reason to believe the tree is there. Yes, just as the more people who say that it's it's better to be good than to be bad gives us more reason, but it doesn't you can always someone could always reply to the tree thing with and I mean philosophy is full of these. It's actually like we're in a simulation or actually it's, you know, it's some sort of idealism and this is just like a hallucination from god or Whatever the brain and vat, the like, brain and vat always sits, the, vat, always sits in the background. Yeah. Like that's always there, and you can't. I don't think that you can ever fully do away with. You can you can get like kind of asymptotically closer to certainty that actually the tree is real and we're not brains and vats, but you can't hit absolute certainty. And I think Bayesian I reasoning, getting, <laughs> in a sense, yes. But I think ultimately, what I'm saying is it doesn't really matter because. If there are a handful of holdouts, it doesn't it doesn't matter. If there are a handful of people who are wandering around saying that tree doesn't really exist, the rest of us can kind of get on with our shared experience just fine. And we don't have to, from a moral and ethical perspective, we don't necessarily have to like convince – our moral project doesn't need to con- include convincing every last person of the truth of – our version of moral objectivity, but rather we can kind of also agree that, fine, the person who says, actually, I want to torture babies, I get a kick out of it, I don't see any problem with it, we can't convince them, but what we can do is we can say, okay, we we also, among the other, like, all of us, all of us but that guy agree that this is, that torturing babies is morally wrong, also all of us but that guy agree that Preventing him from torturing babies is acceptable, if not mandatory, right? Um, that we have an obligation to stop it from happening. We can punish him. We can lock him away. We can do whatever it takes, you know, like to to stop him from doing this thing, even if we haven't convinced him. Like that's another asymptotal line that we can approach. And that seems fine to me like i don't i guess i just don't feel the weight of having to go that last little bit well i don't know okay um i'll tell you my theory uh because i agree it's um 
it's very difficult. I am an ethical intuitionist, not because I've, you know, I'm not a professional philosopher. I've read Michael's books and I've read a bunch of papers. I'm not immersed in the debate, so don't put comments about how I said something wrong. But I think that this is, it actually, and this is what we were talking about when you were here. I think it gives you a good reason to believe that in, in a world of bounded reason, that compared to other reasons, X is probably true compared to not X. Um, and given my limited brain and time on this earth um, and time to even, you know, which problems do I want to think about, uh, this is better than the alternatives, essentially. And I think you're still saying that at the background of what you're saying. Um, this is why I don't think virtue ethics is actually an ethics. I think it's an existential approach to how to live your life, but it lacks a metaphysical component, which is fine if you're saying, listen to what people agree on about what lives, what constitutes a good life and do those things, then you're, you're appealing to something, right? Now, to use logic and reason on someone who wants to hurt babies, I think there's a way of doing it. And I think Kant points us in the right direction, which is... Um, if you think that you are the same thing as that thing, meaning you're a human and that's human, um, and of course they could deny that premise, you know, maybe they're a different color or a different nationality. But if you can, if you can get them to say, you know, you and your neighbor, are you the same thing? Do you believe that they should respect your autonomy, that they shouldn't come and punch you? then it, it can be entailed. It's not inevitable, but like it, it, you can make a pretty simple premise argument that that also means that you shouldn't punch them. So what you've done there is you've created a contradiction. So, I mean, I'm not saying you could argue a murderer because murderers murder usually for, you know, serial killers, especially most people murder because their wife cheated on them or something, but you couldn't argue Ted Bundy into not being a murderer by saying, here's your Kantian ethics. You believe that you deserve respect. Therefore you have to respect them. But I think as a basic grounding, um, and it's not that it lacks a metaphysical component. It's just saying you can't hold these two beliefs at the same time. So choose one, either respect them, um, as you res as you demand respect, or maybe you don't demand respect at all for yourself, and that, and which of course no one does, and therefore you can hurt them. That that's that's actually pretty powerful. Um, it, it, you know, it, you mix that with a little bit of ethical intuitionism, and I think you get a good enough ethics, um, and then you can use virtue ethics as a guide for the existential component of this, but it's not going to tell you what's right or wrong. Yeah, I guess I don't see a functional difference between that and um, saying that a you know a the right thing to do in a given moral situation is what a similarly situated, fully virtuous person would do, and that you if you expect you should try to hold yourself to that standard in this because otherwise. Because you recognize you would want other people held to that standard. You wouldn't want them behaving towards you as a similarly situated, fully vicious person would. And so you've now, if you 
a, if you act as a vicious person while demanding everyone else be a virtuous person, you've created a contradiction and that contradiction is a problem. Um, I don't know that the contradiction issue is is as persuasive because someone could say, I'm fine with it. Or they could respond with your, like, I don't mind the contradiction. Or in fact, you know, morality is simply the interests of the stronger and I happen to be The stronger. difference between them and me is that they're them and I'm me. Yes. I mean, like, so like full, like full, full ethical egoism, I think would short circuit what you just said. Um, I also, my, my issue, I mean, intuitions play an incredibly important role in all moral reasoning because we can't, we simply can't do whatever your moral theory is. You can't basically like fully apply it in a, I'm going to study all the particular sense to every decision you have to make. You know, this is the objection to like act utilitarianism is if you actually had to do all of the work to add up all of the utility for all the different possibilities, you would be paralyzed. You'd never, you'd never have an opportunity to make a decision because it would take too long. Uh, and and we could do the same sort of thing with, you know, like a, a deontologist's flowchart of rules. You can't in the moment, like, think through that whole flowchart because moral decisions don't happen that way. Uh, or the virtue person says, you know, we have to we have to tune our skill of like practical wisdom, which is basically a form of my brain has taken in, here are the virtues that apply, here's the particulars of the situation. Okay, what's what's the right answer when you put all of that together? And that has an intuitive because you can't sit down with your calculator and moral compass and plot it out on your moral map because you have to make a decision. So it's important. I think the, the issue that I often have with pure intuitionism is <clears throat> intuitionists can disagree. You know, I mean, this is this was the interesting, like when Michael Humer, you've mentioned a few times, wrote his book on the problem of political authority, where he basically takes an ethical intuitionist approach to assessing the power of the state. And he makes a fairly standard argument that like, look, the state tells people who have taken marijuana that we are going to, I'm now, I'm going I agent of the state, I'm going to come out and I'm going to lock you in a in jail for doing that. And humor says, okay, they, they say they can do that. But like, if I, as an individual were to go up to you, Trevor on the street and you are smoking marijuana and I throw you in handcuffs, drag you into my basement and chain you up in a cage in there, our intuitions would all say you've done something wrong. And so therefore, aha, this, why does the state get to do it? Why does the agent of the state, just because they called themselves that get to do it? Okay, but it was, I think, Arnold Kling in a review of that book pointed out rightly that the majority of people have an intuition that there's a fundamental difference between those two things. And so their intuition actually runs counter to humor's intuition. Not that they have an argument for why it's okay in one case but not the other, but simply they have a strong intuition that there is a difference even if they can't articulate it. And, and the and the way you have to resolve that is to be like, well, my intuition is better than your intuition. And that seems to be a problem for a pure intuitionist account. The other part of it is that I think that our intuitions are not – they're not something that we just have 
in a unevolving state that we can actively tune or change our intuitions, that our intuitions have to hook on to our perceptions and we can change our moral perceptions, our perspective on the world. We can investigate internally through introspection our own experience and that can have a dramatic change in our intuitions about how we should relate to others, the relationship that we have to others, the, all these things that have strong moral aspects to them. Um, and so to say my intuitions tell me X, someone else can say, well, look, my more tuned, more informed, more evolved, more sophisticated intuitions tell me Y. Uh, that seems to be like that that conflict can be real and we can say well your intuitions have led you astray because you haven't done the degree of say introspection or knowledge acquisition that i have done um and and so now we're just back to kind of something other than intuitions is in play yeah functionally i mean that that's what i like about virtue ethics um because it it does end up back at this, at this place where, as you pointed out, you can't utilitarianism act. Utilitarianism can be debilitating. Rule utilitarianism um, is a little bit more functional, but still suffers from the same problems. Uh, deontology, wherever your your source derives, also suffers from these problems. So, at the end of the day, what people actually do is rely on their sense of goodness and and their sense of what a good thriving person does and even if they say otherwise um that that's what they're doing and to some extent their intuition informs their sense of goodness um i can get behind that uh as a uh as a best guess kind of theory um and it, again understanding that we don't have enough time as human beings or the ability to really understand reality. So best guess is really what we should be doing most of the time, whether it's about, you know, the existence of God or, or other parts of reality or what your ethical choices are going to be. And by extension or political choices, I can get behind that. Um, and that gets to, you know, something we've talked about for decades that there is an interesting aspect of, ethical philosophy, which is that essentially so much of the literature is just, um, <clears throat> I propose theory X determines, you know, whether something is right or wrong. Someone else writes a paper that says, ah, but here's the reductio by your argument, you can kill babies. And then the person who proposed the original theory can either bite that bullet and say, like some people do. Yes. I can kill babies or you can say, no, 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 no. You're, you're misinterpreting my theory. This theory does not allow killing babies. But the interesting backdrop there is that, uh, any theory that allows for killing babies can't be ethical, which of course is again, relying on intuition. Like the, the, un, I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, philosophers are fairly complex in their reasoning, especially modern in modern literature. But, uh, it's, you know, it's not an unstated assumption, so to speak, that, you know, killing babies is wrong, but they're still relying on intuitionism. And I mean, 
you know, and so what I, what I asked now, cause we've gone through a bunch of different things here. We're running out of time, but, um, make the case for virtue ethics. Um, you know, after this discussion, like, uh, what is the case? Like, is it, is it existential? Is it metaphysical? Is it, does virtue ethics actually tell us a thing that is true about the world? Um, or is it a best guess for how you should live your life given the constraints that we have? I see the role of moral philosophy not in kind of starting from ground zero and articulating a essentially unmoored in experience and intuition and traits of character set of rules by which we can, as long as we apply them correctly, we will do the right thing, be good people, live an ethical life, et cetera, et cetera. I see the role of moral theory as similar to the way you might think about musical theory, that you don't, musical theory doesn't give you a set of rules to follow by which if you just follow these rules, you can produce great works of music. It doesn't work that way because there is, there's a great music comes out of an intuitive and artistic sense, a a set of tastes that may differ. So great music to one might be, I find, I understand that opera is great music, but I personally find it just like aesthetically deeply unpleasing. And Heresy. so I can't listen to it. Uh, but you you need to make great music. You're taking this set of intuitions, preferences, tastes, perspectives, to like whatever it is, and then you're putting it together into this thing. And the role of musical theory, the role of going to school to learn about music is to take all of that and clarify it for yourself, teach you like historically, this is the kind of stuff that seems to work. This is the kind of stuff that doesn't seem to work. This is where these are the rules that you can break in your creativity. These are the ones that maybe you can break them, but you should be more hesitant because more often than not, breaking them produces something that doesn't sound good. Uh, here's here's how to structure your thinking in the process of composition or play, whatever it happens to be. Like that, that's the role for me of of moral theory is to take this jumble of dispositions, preferences, perspectives, and so on that we have that's just part of like our, our experience as human beings interacting in this shared world and help us put that all together into something that works well, that, that makes us good people of the kind that we want to be. And, and so part of that is, is rules, but I think that part of that is saying, okay, but in the moment we can't apply all of the rules. You have to make a decision. And so what kind of person, this is where the virtue ethical perspective comes in, what kind of person is more likely to do something that we would consider to be morally correct or ethical in a given situation? And and that's another thing that we kind of share. Like we all, the virtues, we all recognize that beneficence, generosity, gratitude, courage, honesty, like these are good 
thing. There's very few people who go around actually arguing that, say, being dishonest and miserly and resentful and full of ill will and so on is like is good, right? The question is like how do we how do we bring more of these positive qualities into ourselves? And then what do those positive qualities do when it comes time to make a decision? We're also training our intuition, our practical wisdom in the sense of making the right decision in a given moment is not just a matter of having the right motivations because your motivations can lead you to do things that hurt people. And good motivations can lead you to do things that hurt people if you don't know, if you haven't read the situation correctly. Like, now might not be the time for absolute honesty when the person just asks you this question, but maybe coloring the truth is going to make them and you and the world happier. Or this situation that looks like this to you is because you missed this whole part of it that you were unaware of, and so acting could cause further harm. And so there's a, but that's another set of like positive character traits, right? Like knowing, being the kind of person who wants to know the situation well or recognizes what they don't know, doesn't rush to judgment in the face of ignorance and so on. Like those are also positive traits of character. And so I see, I see virtue ethics not as, not as like the right moral theory in terms of here's a set of arguments that leads to the right conclusion, but rather the right moral theory in terms of most accurately describing how morality for us actually works, what the process of being moral feels like, looks like, how we think through it. And, and so it's less about kind of articulating a new system and it's more about giving us – giving clarity to the way that we actually like already function. And then by giving that clarity, it enables us to see the path towards improvement in a way that I think other moral theories really don't. Like it's not clear – utilitarianism tells us what the right thing is, but it doesn't really tell us how to become the kinds of person who is going to like accurately apply utilitarianism in a given situation. And so it's it's missing a large chunk of what a – I tend to call them ethical theories as opposed to moral theories, but what like an ethical theory really is. It's not just the what, but it's it's the how. That sounds, yeah, I like that. Good enough. Which is my theory of virtue ethics. Good enough. And read Confessions of a Philosopher by Brian McGee. It is an absolutely wonderful book. Thank you for joining us on Freedom. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to get access to episode transcripts, bonus content, extended conversations, and our Discord community, go to freedom.audio slash join.